This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the Mom Room. I just watched a 10-minute video on how to make this microphone louder. Now, when you're listening to this, you're going to be like, Renee, it sounds fine. That's because in post, I will have increased the volume of the audio. But do you remember, okay, I set up my fancy microphone so that I could use it when I'm recording into the computer and recording virtually, but it's so quiet. I have to like jack the audio levels up afterwards. It's just really annoying. And then so if I'm using this microphone to talk to somebody virtually for the podcast, they're not going to be able to hear me. And a quick shout out to Michael Vaughn. He is also known as World Shaker on TikTok. I watched one of his TikToks and I was like, oh my God, he sounds so like crystal clear. His video was super clear. And so I sent him a quick email and I was like, what equipment are you using? And so that's how I was inspired to set up my expensive microphone on the computer. I bought all the things that he recommended except for one thing, which was the thing that is needed to make the audio not so quiet. And that is, it's called a preamp, like an amplifier for your microphone. And so apparently these microphones need that. So here we go. Gonna order another freaking audio equipment thingamajig from Amazon. But what a gem of a human Michael is because I literally sent him just like a quick email like, oh, what are you using? Like, you know, your TikToks are amazing. He sent me a dissertation of all the equipment that he used, what it does, linked it to Amazon, like gem of a human. I was shocked. So thank you very much, Michael, because... I'm hoping the audio quality on the podcast and, you know, if I make some more TikToks where I'm just like talking into a screen, the quality is just going to be out of this world. But I'm working on it. I'm learning. This stuff is so technical and you have one little issue and you're watching like an hour's worth of YouTube videos (laughs) trying to find the answer. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening to that little... I don't know why I complain about the audio and the setup and the equipment and all that stuff. I guess because I complain about everything, like coffee, now I'm onto water, really like complaining about water lately. Maybe my next podcast will be called Complaining with Renee Rina. Anywho, let's get into this week's episode. Today, I am joined by Dr. Morgan Cutlip. I started to see her content on Instagram and I was like, oh my gosh, 
Like, I need to have her on the podcast. She talks about all the things that I just love talking about. She has a new book out called Love Your Kids Without Losing Yourself, Five Steps to Banish Guilt and Beat Burnout. Morgan has a PhD in psychology. She is a featured relationship expert with Teen Vogue, The New York Times, Women's Health Magazine. She has two kids, and so she knows what it's like to lose yourself in motherhood, but she is now determined to help mothers everywhere navigate motherhood in a way where they don't lose themselves. Or if you have lost yourself, we are going to help you get yourself back today. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Morgan Cutlip to the mom room. Okay, so my first question for you, and I, every time I have someone on that has a PhD in psychology, I want to know, like, how did you get into the area that you specialize in? Like, how did this all start? So you don't know what you signed up for when you asked this question. <laughs> Like I'm apologizing in advance. Okay, so my dad has his doctorate in psychology, and he went back to school when I was in grade school. And so I went to class with him. I started going to class with him. I was probably six or seven, and I would pack like a fake briefcase, like one of those plastic briefcases full of paper and candy, and I would take notes, and I would sit in class with him. And the school was maybe like an hour away. And we would play this game where he would give me almost like hypothetical cases and ask me what I would do about them. And so this became a really just like I would every time we'd get some time together, I'd be like, give me a case, give me a case. So it became something I was really, really just loved to do and invested in. And then fast forward, I mean, from as long as I can remember, I wanted to be in the field of psychology. And so when he graduated, he had his own practice. He pretty quickly on started writing coursework. He started writing like courses for singles is really where he began. Kind of before like everybody and their cousin had a course on every topic under the sun. And so when he teaches his course for singles, I'd go with him and I'd whatever work the money booth or something. And I would do the things and eventually started speaking with him. I taught one of his master's classes on, I did a lecture on Freud. Like I just was like into it. And many years later, I realized if I was going going to follow in his footsteps, I wanted to have my own degrees so I could do my own thing someday. And so that's, I pursued my own education. But really my upbringing and my experience with him was in translating psychological theory and research into practical tools. And so I feel like that's where, that's my sweet spot. That's what I've learned from him. And that's that's what I've loved to do. And so it was all around relationships and been doing that for over 15 years. And then, gosh, I think it was in my sophomore year of college or freshman year of college, I told my dad, you got all this stuff. You're doing great. My thing's going to be women. I don't know what it is, but someday I want to do stuff for women. And he's like, whatever. And so then many, many years later, our daughter Effie, who's 10 now, but she was born and I felt like motherhood smacked me in the face. Like It was so brutal. Where were you at in your career when you had your first? I had delayed graduation because I was pregnant. So I was already done with everything, internship, dissertation, all of that. I just needed to go get my degree. I got my, I walked and got my degree when Effie was two months old. 
Mm, So, but I had been working alongside my dad throughout my entire educational experience. And my PhD got a little drawn out. We don't need to get into that, but it took a while. But yeah, I mean, I felt buried in motherhood. The loss of freedom, all the things you talk about, the overwhelm, the resentment towards my husband, all of the things. And I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to, I don't know the answers, but I'll be able to use my skill sets to figure something out. And I want to help moms navigate this time differently. So that's my long story. (laughs) I love it. It's like I'm listening to your story, like going to school with your dad when you're six. I'm like, (laughs) when people ask like, oh, like what made you like want to get a PhD? I'm like, oh, I saw Dr. Phil when I was in high school. Like I (laughs) watched Dr. Phil. (laughs) (laughs) That's valid. This is the crazy part. So I went to the same, I got my doctorate from the same school my dad did. And I actually had the professor whose class I went to, I had that same professor. It was her last year. It was vocational psychology. And I remember drawing like these concentric circles, taking notes when I was a little kid. And it was still teaching the same thing. All these years. Did she remember you? No. No. Okay. (laughs) I feel like right before I left, I reminded her. I was like, did you know? But I didn't want her to know. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's wild. So your transition to motherhood, I remember reading on your website that you said that you completely lost yourself. Like, it's kind of similar because I gave birth to Milo. Same thing. I was, like, basically done my dissertation. Everything was done. But I had to make edits and then do the defense, like the oral defense. So I took a maternity leave in the the program, but then right out of school, I had like a young, a tiny, tiny little baby, right? So it was similar timing for us. So how did you get back into working and like, how did you find yourself basically and like move forward? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us. I I mean, geez, I... A little bit of pressure on that question. I, I feel like I was lost for years. Like I I feel like and I and I do say at the beginning of my book, I kind of talk about and I actually end this way too, of I think that we lose ourselves over and over again in motherhood. We lose ourselves over and over again in our relationships. I don't think that's actually the problem. The problem is when we get lost and we stay there permanently. So I mean, how did I get back into work? I for at the time I was doing weird work for my dad. I was doing like workbook design and edits and things like that. And I remember having like a six-week-old baby or two-week-old baby right next to me on the couch with my laptop on my lap trying to do the things. And I think, and I don't know if other moms will resonate with this, but I, gosh, I was naive about how dramatically my my time and my life would shift after we welcomed a baby into the world. My husband traveled constantly. He got relocated to, we were in Florida at the time. He got relocated to California two months after she was born. So he was kind of out of the picture for a good chunk of time. And just like so naive about how much I would have to rearrange of my life, how I'd have to adjust how much productivity I would have during the day. And I think these were part of the things that I felt really buried by and really lost in. And so the process of coming out of it took a long time for me. So did it kind of click for you? Because I know you said when you were a sophomore, you were like, oh, I want to do something for women. And did it kind of click for you like in that period of time where you were like, oh, this is <laughs> this is a good place is, to focus. <laughs> yes. 
totally. Where I was like, this is, it felt so consuming that I was like, I can't think about anything but this. I started reading books, reading research, blogs, all of the things to figure out, okay, what is, what is another way? What is another path through this to really empower moms and to help moms feel? Yeah, I think moms really, you know, we have these like this tension between wanting to be amazing mothers, but then also wanting to not feel like crap in motherhood. And so how do we resolve this tension of kind of satiating both of these deep desires? One of the things that I started to realize was I still want to have a life outside of the home is how I say it. But basically, like, I still want to do the things that I did before. And I think it's so easy for women to become a mom and then their entire life just shifts. You know, it's like you were saying, it's hard to, like, we want to focus everything onto the baby and onto our kids. But then how do you balance also filling your cup and fulfilling your needs? And then at the same time, not feeling guilty about doing that. It's complex. That's why these self-care crap is baloney because it's like, give me a list of things to do, like take a walk and it doesn't even scratch the surface. <laughs> there's way more, there's way more to it and the guilt and all the things. So I think that, you know, motherhood's kind of crazy. So I think as women, we are fed messages from the moment we're born. All our lives, we're absorbing these messages from society, from the structures we exist in, from our caregivers, that we need to self-sacrifice for the preservation of our relationships. We have to go on the back burner so everyone else can thrive. We need to martyr ourselves so that everybody else can be whole. And so when we get into motherhood, these messages, they just like turn up the dial on these messages. And I think in some ways, we... You sort of have to backburn yourself in the beginning of motherhood. You have to make your needs small because you got to keep this baby alive. And you love, and you love, we love our kids. They're so very demanding. That, they're, and they're so, and they make their needs very known. Like it's, we love them. It's not that hard for us, I think, to self sacrifice in the beginning of motherhood. But I think what happens is that to shift out of it, it's almost like swimming against the current. It's like, oh, I need to start prioritizing my needs. I need to start defining and asserting my needs. But, oh my gosh, my whole life I've been told I need to be needless as a woman and, and a good mom is needless. And so I think what happens is that the beginning of motherhood, we're, we're kind of forced to, to make our needs small. We put them on the back burner. We put ourselves on the back burner. We get stuck there because coming out of it is, again, swimming against that current of all of the messaging we've been fed for the majority of our lives. And so it becomes really challenging. But the consequences of not doing that work is that we end up getting really bitter and burnt out and resentful in our relationships. And so it's like, yeah, we've got to. Like, we have no other choice than to behave differently in our relationships with others and ourselves. And part of that means not necessarily putting ourselves first, but part of that means that we, we start getting a turn. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You guys know I have been very intentional with what we've been eating lately. I'm looking at protein. I'm looking at sugar content and avoiding things like artificial ingredients or colorings. Milo used to always want pancakes or waffles in the mornings, and now he is getting into cereal, and I'm so excited because Magic Spoon is the perfect option. Their variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. They have zero grams of sugar, 
13 to 14 grams of protein and only four to five grams of carbs per serving. They're made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes. And I'm just so happy that he's getting a good amount of protein before he goes off to school. And it's a great snack for me and my husband too, because 13 to 14 grams of protein in the cereal, now you add a high protein milk, you're set. That is such a high protein snack or meal. I should also mention that it is gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So go to magicspoon.com slash momroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code momroom at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momroom and use the code momroom to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. It is 2024. As busy parents, it's hard to completely overhaul our lives, but what we can do is make small changes that will make our lives easier. And that is where Little Spoon comes in. Their goal is to make keeping your kid healthy feel like the easiest part of your day so that you can cut through all the drama of mealtime. Little Spoon offers baby blends, biteables, and plates. So baby blends is fresh, organic baby food. They have single ingredients, but also multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. Biteables make the transition to finger foods easy because they are cut perfectly to size, which promotes self-feeding. And of course, all the biteables are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. And then there are plates for your toddlers and your bigger kids. They are meals that are free of all the bad stuff. They taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. They have things like hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous things like pot stickers, gnocchi, and more. Little Spoon also has smoothies and build-it-yourself lunches. Did I mention it all comes right to your door? It is super flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. You can pick up the menu and change up what you order every single time. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You and your kids will love it. It's a huge win-win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. How do you describe mom guilt? I feel like mom guilt is this thing that like the term is used constantly we like there's so much content about it people make jokes about it it's like you know it's so overused and I don't know that it's actually understood like before I had Milo I was like oh yeah mom guilt haha like whatever I was thinking it was this feeling that you would have for major events like oh your kid you know you look away for a minute and they get hurt at the park and you're like oh like I feel like shit now, but it's not. It's like this never-ending, like, I forget what I termed it before. It was like a nagging, like, something, like, in your brain, just constant. And I find it difficult to describe sometimes. So how would you, like, put words to what mom guilt is? Yeah, so 
I, okay, so let's define guilt. Guilt is basically a feeling that comes up when you feel like you violated some standard you hold yourselves to. So it might be like a moral standard or just a value standard, any type of standard. So the way that I describe guilt is there's two types. There's deserved guilt, which is actually really, really helpful. And this one doesn't get enough play. So let me give you an example. I launched my book recently. I felt like I lived glued to my phone. I absolutely hated it, but it was just kind of part of the territory at that time. And I felt a lot of guilt because I'd be around my kids and they'd be talking to me and I'd be like, hold on, hold on, hold on, you know, doing the thing that we judge ourselves and others for doing, just like being on my phone. And I felt guilt. My guilt was kind of deserved because it violated a standard that I hold myself to, which is that I want to be a present mom who like looks my kid in the eyes when I'm talking to them. And so my guilt prompted me to make a behavioral change. So I took my phone. I think I put it in the silverware drawer. And I forgot about it and I like hung with my kids and I felt a lot better. And so that was a deserved and like a functional guilt. The other type of guilt is undeserved guilt. And this is the guilt that comes up when we are holding ourselves to a standard that has gone berserk. It's like an extreme standard that is impossible to meet. And so this is why we'll have that nagging, never-ending, relentless, oppressive guilt that sucks the joy out of motherhood is because a lot of times we have these really intense standards that we hold ourselves to that we're never going to meet. Like, there's, they're crazy. When you define them and you put them on the table, they sound crazy, but they're actually operating in the background for so many of us. Something like, Oh, because I'm a stay-at-home mom, I should never need help. So anytime you think about getting help, ask for help, hire a sitter, do the things, you feel guilty. Or there's this belief that's associated with intensive parenting, which is that moms are the best ones to do all the things. If you ascribe to that belief, anytime you ask for help, anytime you put your kid in childcare, drop them off at daycare, you're sort of then believing that you're subjecting your kids to second-rate care. This is going to stir up guilt. So part of getting over this guilt, resolving this guilt, is taking these extreme expectations, putting them, I call them impossible standards, putting them on the table and being like, all right, let's shine some light on these and let's start to rework them because they are absolutely destroying my experience in motherhood and making it difficult for me to show up as the mom I want to be. It's interesting, the daycare or childcare thing. I remember I had to finish school, so Milo had to go to daycare. But even if I wasn't finishing school, like I started to realize very quickly, and of course not all daycares are going to be the same, but I was like, daycare is an opportunity for him. I stopped looking at it as a necessity like, he thrived. His development skyrocketed. He was so social. He made these amazing relationships with his teachers. He was now able to take instruction from other adults. He was, like, building attachment bonds with, like, other adults. Like, I saw so much value in childcare, And so I totally switched my thinking about childcare, Like, it was an opportunity for him. I think that reframe is so powerful for us to think about. And it's funny because there's a lot of things that contradict in how we approach motherhood. Like, we're all like, where's our village? We want a village. And then we're also like, no, I'm the one who needs to do everything. <laughs> I need to do it perfectly. And you can't. And then, you know, childcare is is like, it's 
kind of part of the modern day village. It we is. Need, we need it. And so why don't we think of it through that lens? I, Gosh, I when our daughter was younger, I had a lot of guilt around working. And I only worked a couple days. I mean, I only worked a couple days a week, but it was the idea of somebody else being with her and me missing out. And I remember reading this book and I can't remember the name and I don't know entirely how helpful it was, but it like colored it's like personality and temperament and made them into colors or something. And I remember reading about hers and it was like, this type of child requires multiple caregivers because they need a lot and you will not, it's not sustainable for one person to be the sole source of giving them all the things. And I was like, thank you. That is the greatest gift I have ever read in a book, at least early on in motherhood, because I needed that permission. But I think it should apply to all kids. You know, our village might have to be composed of hiring people or our childcare facility or the teachers, but the village is important. It's important our kids learn how to interact with other people. And it's not necessarily something we need to feel bad about. Yeah, I remember writing a post about a modern day village. This was years ago. And this was during the pandemic. So I was home alone with Milo. And I was saying, like, my village was the Wiggles, uh, <laughs> the Uber Eats guy. Like, hey, like, welcome to my village, you know? And it's it's so true. Like, nowadays, it's not the people that live on your street and family. Like, so many of us live far away from our family. We don't necessarily have like that kind of support in our life. So yeah, like make your own village. It could be the childcare center at your gym, like anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, did people push back? No. Okay. Well, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I can recall. (laughs) You're like, I don't know. (laughs) I know I have this post I sat on for a long time. I've never posted it actually, but it was about making our village and, and like, I think about, I don't know, sometimes we think our village needs to be like the inner sanctum of people. Like these, you know, we have these years of relationship with, and we have to be safe and discerning with who we entrust our kids with. Absolutely. But I think about like kids that I know whose parents are decent, and I know the circumstances of their family and all the things, but it's like, we're not best friends, but we like, will kids swap and we'll like do play, you know, and there's, there's all of these... Uh, I don't know, different ways of thinking about our village that can become really powerful in our experience in motherhood that I think we need to expand the definition. So let's talk a little bit about, obviously this podcast is called The Mom Room. So all my listeners, I shouldn't say all, maybe, hi dads, are there some dads listening? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's mostly moms and most have little kids. So I'm sure previously when we were talking about losing ourselves and you know, meeting our own needs as well and filling our own cup. Lots of people are probably like, oh my God, I'm in that situation right now, like help. So how do you recommend mothers with little kids start to try and prioritize themselves or even identify what it is that's missing that could make them feel whole again? Like, where do people start? And how do we approach our partners with that? Because like you were saying, there can be guilt attached to that and a feeling of like, I should only be focusing on motherhood because I stay home. I don't, maybe I don't make money. You know, all those things that people tell themselves sometimes. So where do we start? Okay, so I'll go big picture and then I'll give a few specifics. And basically, this is my book. Like, that is what my whole book is about and walks through all these things guilt, kind of like restructuring some of our belief systems around these things. But I think 
big picture, the takeaway that I want moms to have from the book is that we need to mother ourselves like we mother our kids. We are the most amazing managers of all of our relationships and our life, but we do not turn the same skill sets toward ourselves. I feel like we're like, I don't know, I used this example recently of how just how much regularly we think about our kids and we intuit their needs and then we act, we behaviorally do the things to meet their needs. But like, how often do you do that for yourself to even know what you need? And so the book is really about teaching moms. I, I use examples of applying it to kids and then applying it to self because I think it's more palatable that way and understandable. So I walk moms through exactly what does it mean to mother yourself like you mother kids and what do you do? So What that means is that we have a relationship with ourselves, much like we have a relationship with everybody else, but we have become very disassociated with this relationship. It's been backburnered. We sort of dismiss ourselves. We're not not in the know with ourselves anymore. So I think the first thing, and this is a big picture— is that moms need to start practicing regular like check-ins with themselves, almost like these self-assessments where you take a minute, you can do it when you go to the bathroom, when you're cutting up a sandwich, when you're in the shower, whenever. Take a minute, be like, how am I doing? What do I need? What's going on with me? And start to establish a connection with yourself. And I know that sounds kind of out there. I do walk through practically how you do that in the book. But I think that's where moms need to start. It's sort of like these baby steps that are manageable right alongside your kids. I don't want to give you guys suggestions that it's like you've got to go on a week-long cruise to feel better. So start connecting with yourself. Start getting in in touch with yourself again. So here then are some practical things you can do. If you have trouble defining what you need, think about what you complain about the most. Our complaints are windows into our unmet needs. I think probably everyone, for the most part, will know this, but that experience of walking around the house kind of muttering under your breath, like, oh, I guess I'll take care of this. I guess I'll do that. Those are times where you might want to like pause and be like, okay, what am I muttering about? These are unmet needs. And then those give you the direction you can head in. Maybe your unmet needs are like, I don't feel appreciated. So what does that mean you need to do? I don't feel like I can come up for air. What does that mean that you need? So use that to define some of your needs. Another thing I like around needs is need stacking. There are all sorts of ways to accomplish meeting a need for you right alongside your kids. Because I know not all moms have the time and the support and the resources to like exit the home to get these needs met. So I remember when our daughter was born, part of my need stacking was like popping her. This is obvious one, but there's lots of ways to do this. Pop her in the stroller and go for a walk. She got some sunshine and got outside. I got outside and got to move my body. So how can you do both needs met? Sometimes it's turning on the TV while you go in your room and chill out for a minute. So think about those two things. One more practical thing. I encourage moms to unpack the question, the type of mom I thought I'd be is. I think all of us spend the majority of our life from the moment we're born sort of internalizing all these messages around what it means to be a good mom. We are not even aware that this stuff exists until we become a mom, and it comes out in the form of all these really high expectations and standards we hold ourselves to. And so then we just feel the judgment, the guilt, the the self-criticism, and all of these things. And so if you unpack that statement, it'll start to reveal all of these expectations that have lived inside of you, but you've never really articulated, and then you can decide what to do with them. Maybe you're like, you know what? 
this isn't fit for me anymore. I'm going to revise it. I'm going to ditch it. This one I like. I'm going to keep this one. You can add new ones. It, it empowers you to do something with it. And I think those things can make some meaningful shifts for moms in motherhood. The self-check-ins, like incredible advice. I remember when I would start talking about, you know, like default parenting kind of things and, you know, just complaining about stuff as I do. So many people would have me on their podcast and they would be like, what's your, at the end of the interview, it would be like, what's your advice for moms? Like if you could say one thing. And I was always like, sit down and reflect on stuff. Like, (laughs) why am I pissed off when my husband does X, Y, Z? Like, what is it? What is it about that situation that makes me irritated. And then you can come up with a solution. You can, you know, not react in the moment and like start a big fight or they they get defensive. Like you can actually like think your thoughts, like get it straight and then figure out what to do about it. So like the self-check-ins is the same kind of thing. And when you said the thing about muttering around, like <laughs> that was me on Sunday. Okay. Like <laughs> Oh my God, that was me. And yeah, it's a few days before my period. So like, I know that like in my mind, I'm like, okay, Renee, like here we go again. But in the moment, like, what do you recommend we do? Because I think a lot of times moms find them in a situation where they are martyring themselves. I love that term. Like I always call it martyr tendencies. Like we have these, this tendency to be like, Like, that was me on Sunday because I was so irritated that I was doing all these things with Milo. Like, we're painting, we're going to the park, we're doing this. And, like, my husband's just, like, kind of in the background. And I'm like... You're like, get with the program. What are you doing? Fuming. (laughs) And, of course, it's like this... I start to look for it then, you know, because I'm like in one of these moods. And so I'm like, oh, he's going to pull out his laptop. Of course he's going to pull out his fucking laptop. Like, 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 why couldn't I just in the moment be like, hey, babe, why don't you come paint haunted houses with us? You know, like, why couldn't I do that? Because (laughs) I was choosing to be a little mutterer. (laughs) I know. Sometimes it feels good to mutter. But I know. I (laughs) (sighs) just get fired up. Oh, there's lots of like avenues to kind of go down with this one. So a couple of things. One thing is that I think sometimes when we martyr ourselves, we forget that we have a sense of agency and power to choose. Just And, and so we, we render ourselves the victim in the story and it doesn't really help us. I know sometimes we need a pity party. It's like, have your pity party. But then also you have a sense of agency, so step into it, which is, so my story is that there were multiple times where my husband would be like on the couch and my, he's a doer. Honestly, I need like more words from that guy, but he's a doer. He will do Same anything. Same with my husband. He's yes. like an acts of service kind of person oh, to, to like a fault almost. Like, right. Or I'm like, it doesn't replace words. But anyway, that's <laughs> maybe another interview. We can talk about that. So he was like sitting on the couch and I was in the kitchen. I just finished dinner and I'm looking at the mess and I was like, must be nice sitting over on the couch and just being the fun dad while I'm over here slaving away and blah, 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 doing the thing that we know that we do sometimes. And what I have realized over the years is like, I can sit on the couch too. Too. I oh don't, my God. Yeah. I don't have to do this. Nobody is putting a, like, nobody is saying, 
Morgan do the dishes. And I was making all sorts of meaning of it. Oh, he thinks, he expects me to do it. He thinks I'm his servant over here, slaving away making dinner. And then now doing, you know, like we create this whole storyline in our heads. And when I was like, oh, I can sit on the couch too. So I started to, I just sit on the couch, hang out, have fun, do the thing. And you know what? Eventually he'd get up and do the dishes. And he always would. And sometimes I do it, but you know, most of the time he would. And so I think Number one, you have a sense of agency. You have more power to choose. And I know those dishes might bug you. I get it. But also, maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's worth not getting so enraged. And they will eventually get done. There's all caveats to this. Like, oh, my partner never would do them. And so maybe. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Like, I find myself, like, complaining or, like, telling a story about something my husband does. And everyone's like, I wish my husband would do that. And I'm like, okay, but, like, that's not the point. Yeah. (laughs) Can get behind me on this one, guys. Yes, not the point. But yes, it's so true. I have this classic like martyr story of my husband was going to give Milo a bath, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I got it." Like, because I wanted to go have a shower, so he's like, "I'll give him a bath. Like, you go have a shower." And then we walk upstairs, the three of us, and my husband starts like organizing his closet, and I'm like, "Okay." So I start giving Milo a bath, and muttering under my breath. But like like you said, I had agency to go have my freaking shower. He just wasn't giving Milo a bath that second. But in my mind, I was like, oh, here we go. Of course. Like, I'm going to have to give him a bath now. And my husband was like, I just was getting stuff ready for work tomorrow. Like, yeah, I was going to give I'd him a it. bath. And he had no clue that I was, like, fuming. Like, you know, like, no idea. And then we talked about it afterwards. And it was, he was like, like, are you okay? <laughs> I know. But it's true. We work ourselves up. Like, we do. And we project our standards onto our partners. And so then we hold them to that. And it's like, they don't know. They don't know a lot of times what these standards are. I don't talk about this in the book, but when I talk about the mental load, I talk about behaviors that backfire that we, so I talk about like the between stuff as like a couple, what you can do, but then also internally as an individual, what you can do. And one of the behaviors is impatience. <laughs> is that like, we are so good at being like, can you give the give him a bath? And being like, I'll just do it myself. And it just perpetuates it reg- continually, to, continuing to fall on our shoulders. And so I- I have like a thousand stories of impatience, but in that moment, I could have just been like, I'm going to go have a shower. You're still going to give Milo a bath. And he would have been like, yep, yep. Just like hanging up a shirt or whatever. And I'd been like, cool. Bye. Like, yeah. End of story. Saved yeah. yourself all of that emotional <sighs> energy. But hey, it's a good story to tell though. <laughs> it's a good story. It's so relatable. So, so relatable. Speaking of self-care, I also find this term interesting because it's something that gets thrown around a lot. And at the end of the day, I'm always like, what does that actually even mean? So what does self-care mean to you? Yeah, there's lots of things that it doesn't mean to me, but what it does, that could maybe I could go into that. But what it does mean to me is that we are a self that is more than just a physical self. Because I think a lot of the self-care suggestions revolve around physical things. Take a bath, take a walk, are you drinking enough water, get your nails done, which are all lovely things. And some of those things actually will make a big difference. But we're more than that. So self-care is like whole self-care. So it's how you think about yourself, 
how you know yourself, how you assess and assert what you need. So it's like your emotional, your cognitive. It's also like energy, which I talk about in the book is willpower. Like we have, there's a whole body of research about willpower and how this impacts us and how we show up in our relationships. And so it's, it's more than just our physical bodies. It's all of these other systems of self that become really powerful forms of intervention of feeling better in our relationships that often get dismissed when we talk about traditional self-care. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. I know it's so much bigger than just... It's way bigger. ...taking an hour for yourself to do a physical act of some kind, like a walk or a bath or, like, it's everything. Yeah, it, that scratches the surface, especially if you take the bath and the whole time you feel guilty. Like, that's not going to make you oh, feel better. Oh, yes. Right? This is so true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I want to chat about your book. I love the title, Love Your Kids Without Losing Yourself. So you called it a must-read book for modern moms. So I thought we could brainstorm, like, what is a modern mom? And it's really interesting because I had my mamere. She's 79 now. I had her on the podcast, and we were talking about parenting differences from when she was, like, parenting little kids versus now. And she was like, I feel so bad for parents now. Like, the pressure, like, the information overload that you guys have. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Even from my mom's generation, like, she didn't have the internet, you know? Like, can you imagine? No, I said that to my mom once. I was like, because she, my mom has amnesia about raising us. We are like mm, Pollyanna my mom in too. her mind. She's like, you guys were so, you're, you never did that. I was like, what? You know, I said to her, what did you do when you didn't know what to do about parenting stuff? She's like, I just called my friend and did that. I'm like, but your friends were weird. You were okay with their advice. <laughs> That's what my mom said. She's like, your Auntie Carrie and I would just kind of like chat about how we were parenting and it was never an issue like nobody ever judged anybody it was just you did what felt right and I'm like huh must be nice (laughs) yeah right it feels very different all right so let me see if I can articulate why it's different (laughs) so the information overload is a big one I feel like that's the most obvious grasp like that's the it's of course we have all we have an expert culture online now, which is a kind of a newer thing. That's I think we were talking before we hopped on of like all the parenting stuff is packaged in this pretty little bow, but it doesn't always apply. I remember our daughter Effie is a very spicy, and she's she's changed as she's gotten older. Now it's more internal; it was external when she was smaller. And I remember doing the name it to tame it, and it just pissed her off. And I was like, oh, there's something either wrong with me, or wrong with her, or wrong with the both of us. So I think. There is a blessing to all the information. There's also this dark side, this like shadow side of it, which is it overwhelms us. It makes us feel like we're doing it the wrong way. So that's one. I think another is that our goals in parenting are different. 
than previous generations. I don't really know the goals of previous generations. I know we're all trying to do a good job. Maybe it was like raise a kid that works hard and doesn't like sleep on my couch when they're in their 20s. Like I'm not exactly sure. So um, don't hold me to that one. But I feel like our goals now is like we want emotionally intelligent, very like insightful, well-regulated children. Empathetic. Empathetic. Like just all the things. Good yeah. humans. We want good humans. Oh my God. I remember I posted something about and this just goes to show, this is a perfect example. I posted something about how I took Milo to a birthday party. And one of the moms came up to me and was like, my daughter told me, like, she always tells me that your son is the nice boy in the class. And so I, like, was so proud. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to cry. Like, this is so cute. And I made a reel about it, and I posted it, and someone was like, someone, like, turned it around that it was a bad thing. Like, yeah, but, you know, the nice kids, like, you have to make sure that he's able to stand up for himself and, like, all this stuff. Like, that's actually a bad thing. Like, I was the nice kid, and I got bullied. And I'm like, oh, my God, how did this turn into a bad thing? Like, I remember that reel. I remember that. And I was like, I remember I read it, and I rolled my eyes. (laughs) Yeah. Can we not? Because I, Roy, our son, gets the same feedback. And I remember seeing your reel, and I was like, it's not a bad thing. Like, he's can stick up for himself. Like, he's in kindergarten. The, yeah, like, come on. It's like, it's so he's supposed to be like a bully. Like, it's so hard. Yeah, and I know. We, I was we, like, you cannot win. You like, cannot win. And I, I mean, I always use this as an example, and I'm just, I'm waiting for somebody to come at me for it. But like, the idea if we praise our kids, that we raise these like codependent kids who always look for external validation. And I just think that we have black and whited issues instead of seeing that there's like more nuance and gray. And it, really drives me crazy. But I do think that in the quest to raise our children as being these like self-actualized human beings, that we end up parenting with such intensity and hypervigilance that we become almost like we're walking on eggshells in parenting. We're like uptight about it. And this creates stress and anxiety and overwhelm. And it started to like drip, depending on how how much you go down like these, I don't want to call them rabbit holes, but like these these areas of exploration in life, depending how many you go down, you can start to be really hypervigilant about everything. So how you parent, what you feed your kids, the toxicity of different things. I remember like I love these chocolate covered almonds and somebody was like, you know, the lead content in those is so high. And I was like, block. I blocked them. Like, do not ruin my treats. You know, it's just, but it, it's like that in parenting. It's like, there's always something to worry about. And we, and, and part of it is the information overload. Part of it is our quest to do it just so and just perfectly that I think we have created a scenario where we are always feeling like we're doing something wrong or falling short in some domain of our parenting life. And I think this is why it's become really, really stressful. Oh, also, and research shows that we are way more judgmental of our generation of parents and also past generations judge us more harshly. (laughs) So like that feeling of being judged is actually real. So I think all of it is just, it's, it's intense. It's, it's hard to parent right now. It is. Yeah. That's what I was saying to my mamere. Like she was like, I can see how like if Milo does something like a certain behavior, I'm almost like a deer in headlights because I'm like, 
scanning the information, like, how should I react in this moment? Or I'll be like, he's working on something. And I'm like, oh my God, Milo, good job. You did really good on that. And then I'm like, no, I mean, uh, you worked really hard on that. What are and the colors you used on that? Yeah. <laughs> practice, practice really paid off. Uh, like, you know what I mean? I'm like, you can't say good job anymore. <laughs> you so know what, silly. Too? I don't think I've said this before, but I feel like, because usually it's the women that are the consumers of this because we carry the load and we do the research and all the things. So then, okay, so then we feel the uptightness about wanting to do it right, but then we also feel the uptightness and the intensity over trying to get our partners to do it our way. And they're sort of like, you know, there's all, there's a continuum of where partners are at, but a lot of partners are like, just tell them to stop it or just don't do that. You know, they're, they're like, they're not in the same world. And so it becomes a layered experience of anxiety and worry. And, and I think the other piece too, is that our generation of millennial parents, we are a generation that has, that is the most invested in self-improvement. If you look at our spending, we spend the most on self-improvement and things. And I think we are like, have this heightened sort of awareness of the fragility of the human experience. And I think this is this like, thread that goes through everything. And so we put that on our kids and we're like, they're so fragile. It's weird because then we're like, they're resilient, but also they're fragile. But this belief that they're fragile also then means that one misstep can cause like a micro trauma for them. And so like, that's this other thing that we're carrying all the time and we're projecting it onto our partners and our, the grandparents and all the people involved potentially in a child's life as well as on ourselves. And it is heavy. It's heavy. Sometimes I think about my own childhood and I'm like, like, I'm great. I'm, I'm okay. And I didn't grow up with all of these things. I remember sitting around the fire with my mamere and my parents and stuff. And Milo was younger at this, at this time. And my mamere was leaving and she's like, oh, like Milo, like, let me give you a hug goodbye. And he's never been one to like hug goodbye or anything. Like he doesn't like goodbyes at all. He'll just ignore you. And I was like, oh no, like he's not he's not good. He's not going to go give you a hug. Like, he's just not like that. And she's like, oh, like, my mare's going to be sad. And I was like, don't say that. Don't make, don't make <laughs> yes. him responsible for your emotions. For your and feelings. she's like, she's like, oh God, here we go. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah. It dis- yeah, it's just, like disruptive in our relationships. I know, and it's crazy. There's truth to it. But then also it's like, can we find a middle ground? And I, I don't know if this comforts people or freaks people out, but I, I said this lots of times is that you don't escape childhood without something. I had a great, I had a pretty good childhood. I left with stuff that I have had to work on. I'm continuing to work on. Like you don't leave childhood without something because there's a difference between intention and interpretation. And, you know, we can have the best of intentions as parents and do the work and do the, you know, all the things. But the way that our kids interpret what we do is kind of out of our hands. And as, you know, we can come in and we can repair and we can have those conversations, try to close those loops. But it's just going to happen. It's just going to happen that some time they're going to interpret something differently than we meant it. And that'll be something they work on later in adulthood. And that's part of being an adult. It really is. It's part of building just like a well-rounded self and grit and resilience. And so I think we have to not be terrible parents. That's not the answer, but we do need to loosen up on some of these standards. So who would you say that your book is for? Who would benefit from reading this book? 
So it's for moms. I feel like I have to say that first and foremost. I've had people be like, what about the dads? And I'm like, do you want me writing a book for dads? I don't know. So that's it's not, for moms. That's not, that's not my area. <laughs> so my, like, sorry. Oh my God. I get that <laughs> question I, all the time. Like, what, what, what about this? I'm like, I don't know how to help you. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got a worse review from this guy. And I was like, why are you reading this? It's not for you. It was so mean. So anyway, it's for moms. It's for it's for moms at any stage in the motherhood journey. I have delivered this information to moms who are empty nesters and they're like, I needed this. I really needed this. So it's any stage in the motherhood journey. It's for, you know, it's for the mom that feels overwhelmed by the guilt when she tries to take a moment for herself, for the mom who is doing all the things but feels like it's never enough. It's for a mom who feels like she gets a moment alone and can't even figure out how to spend it because she's so out of touch with what she needs. It's for a mom who just feels kind of lost in it all and doesn't know where to begin. It's for a mom who want, thought she would be one way in motherhood and is showing up differently and wants to get back to the mom she thought she'd be. It's it's for a mom who's experiencing any of those those types of things at any stage in motherhood. Would this be a good baby shower gift? Yes. It would okay. be amazing. And I it was very important to me that this was an easy, enjoyable read. Moms don't want to spend their time reading like a dry, boring book. So all the points, I go deep and then I come out with practical examples and all of the points are demonstrated through stories. So I explain the point and then I give you stories and I think they're funny. I, I've had people tell me they're funny. So I'm like, I think it's a it's an easy read or you can listen to it and you can give audiobooks as gifts too. Which is oh, that's really amazing. Nice. Yeah, I didn't. I just discovered that recently that you could actually buy it and like send it, which is awesome for moms. I think it's so much easier. I, I only listen to books. It's so much easier to consume information that way. Ah, oh, that's genius. Is it you narrating it? Yeah, I got to read oh. it. Yeah, it was fun. Except there's a, a PDF that comes with it, and I kept having to say accompanying. Um, that is a hard word to a say. Accompanying. It's yeah. kind of hard. <laughs> There's like 10 syllables. But yeah, it was super fun. So it is me narrating it. I love that. That's such a good idea, audiobooks. Okay, so tell people where they can find you online. And also, do you offer courses or anything else? I do. I'm really, I'm not a good salesperson. (laughs) Me either. I need to, this is my goal. I need to shift out of this. But yeah, you can find me on Instagram. It's just drmorgancutlip. It's all one word. That's the same as my website, drmorgancutlip.com. My book is wherever you buy books. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Is it in Canada Chapters? In Indigo or Chapters, yeah. Indigo or Chapters. Okay, so it's there. I think the best place still is, it's like, I've heard people say it's easiest on Amazon, still on Amazon Canada. And I have lots of free gifts. So I have a guide about how to talk to your partner about the mental load, and it comes in audio and digital, and it's free. And I talk about defensiveness and all the things, as well as other stuff for moms. And then I do have courses. So I'm really, like, entering into guides. I just feel like for moms it's easier, and I do them all in audio. So I have a real deep dive on needs that goes a like similar to my book, but a bit deeper. And then we have course on marriage, for marriage, for premarital, singles, all sorts of things like that. So all of those can be found through Instagram or my website. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was fun. So fun. Uh, anytime I get to tell stories about my husband, it's just a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Does he listen? I don't think so. <laughs> my husband doesn't listen either. I was like, you but, don't know what but I like, say. 
he, maybe he secretly listens. Like, I don't know. But like, he knows all these stories anyways. And he's probably like, oh, here we, here we go again. Here like, we go. Chicago. But you know what's funny? Like, people that work with him listen. Oh. So, yeah. So they probably giggle. But It's fun anyways. when you just get to tell your side. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have a platform, so. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.